Greetings in Jesus' name for all of you who were able to come out and not homesick or somewhere else. Greetings to you visitors too. Thank you for coming and trust that the Lord can have a blessing for you this morning as well. like to do this up front here, but don't have much choice. Yeah, well, and I thank the Lord for what we heard this morning already, and in John chapter 1, which is a beautiful, John is, I don't know, I guess, one of my favorite gospels, I guess, because it's so much of the heart of the Lord Jesus. Well, many of the other gospels have lots of Jesus' teachings, his doctrine, and his interaction. But, but with John, it's, it's a very specific back and forth. With the, it's, you're right in context. You, you, you get dropped right in the middle of his interaction with the people, and it's very special. And we could have had a much longer message on that one there. This morning, I am actually going to start a new book study. I, am, I have a disclaimer. I do not finish all my studies, the book studies that I start. <laughs> there are some that I started that I finished, and there are some I started I did not finish, where I got bogged down or distracted or, or otherwise. So I will... Um, attempt to um, go through this one if I can. Going through a book, a letter of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is not the only way to teach God's words. In fact, Jesus did not teach that way. But it's a good way, and it helps the preacher to stay off of his hoppy horse. I've heard of one preacher that he preached for many, many years, but within about a minute of when he start in his message on a Sunday morning, within a minute they knew which, he only had two topics that he ever preached on, one or the other, and within a minute they knew which topic he was going to be preaching on that morning. And I'm sure there's a little bit of a ride, it was always this or always that. I don't think I'm that bad, but I do tend to go down certain lines of thought and and I and and I'm oh, not no I taught about this just not that long ago and you know that kind of thing and so that that's real for me so take taking a book tends to minimize that or doesn't take it away altogether and although I enjoy hearing and giving topical messages if the Bible is taught verse by verse, book by book, you will go over all the topics that need to be addressed in time. Now, you need to be a regular preacher to do that, obviously. So, why don't we just pause again for a word of prayer 
Jesus, Lord, we are grateful to you this morning for your word, the inspired word. We have already looked into John this morning and Revelation and Daniel and other places, Lord, Genesis, Lord, and your word is precious, it's dear, it, it is what orients us in this, in this world that we live in. And Lord, it also points us to you, the true life, the life that has come into the world and has given light to mankind. So Lord, I pray as we go on in the service this morning that that light, your light, would illuminate each one of our hearts and as we study your word, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, prepare us, instruct us, and equip us for your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, we will have Second Corinthians as a book study. And I might ask, why Second Corinthians? Well, first of all, it's a very interesting letter to a very interesting church written by a very interesting man. <laughs> it is unique in numerous ways. It's, it's the most biographical letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul wrote, 13 letters, I believe. I believe I'm correct with that. Now, this 2 Corinthians is not fully, uh, full autobiographical, whatever. It's not a full autobiography of Paul, but it's the most of any of his letters. And it's a very emotional letter. Um, he, he bears more of his heart in this letter and as you read it, you can experience or you can relate to his joys and his hopes and his dismay and his sorrow. You can even feel his love and his wrath in this letter. <clears throat> and in it, you discover a man, the Apostle Paul, a man with a real personality and real emotions. And it's written to the most tumultuous church that Paul established. I believe I'm correct in saying that. The Corinthian church. The, mo the reason we know so much about this church is because it had so many problems. It's the whole thing of the squeaky wheel gets the grease. The Corinthian church needed a lot of grease. It was a high-maintenance church. So, Paul was responding to those issues. And that we can learn from a godly man and how he responded to the issues of our day. Also, it is full of precious truths, and I just gave an arbitrary selection of, uh, of some of the verses that we will be eventually getting there, but verses we're very familiar with, and so I'm just going to read a few of them. I'm just going to, why, why, why are we looking at 2 Corinthians? Well, it has these precious verses in it. 
in uh, three, chapter 3, verse 6. I'm going to just read them off here. Who also hath made us able ministers of the new covenant, New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. And 3.17, Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. 4.7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. 4.18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things, at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And one of my favorite ones in 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And 6.14, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And 12.9, and he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory, rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Just a short selection of the verses that we're going to look at in their context. As, um, in other words, if we, just, just those, just those um, verses that I picked out and just read, if we are experiencing the reality of those verses, just those six verses that I read, if we are experiencing the reality of that, it will keep us from lukewarmness, it will keep us from backsliding, it will keep that relationship with God open and clear. And so, as we look at each of those truths, we'll look at in the, in the original context and what it stemmed from and then how it applies in our lives. So, while this letter is very autobiographical, it is dealing with specific issues in a specific church and is very relevant to us in our place and time. John MacArthur says about this book, it will teach you not by precept and not by law and not by principle and not by reasoned argument. It will teach you by example. This epistle will mentor you. It will disciple you as you see Paul revealed. I thought of that, you know, Timothy went with Paul just about everywhere he went and became the one that took on the baton of the, uh, took on after Paul moved on or died. And so he got that. But as we look at this letter, we can experience a little bit of that, a little bit of what Timothy experienced as we walk with the Apostle Paul in his heart. Here goes John MacArthur keeping on here. The approach of the letter is not historical. It is not theological. It is not even ecclesiological. 
The approach is biographical. It just opens him up, the Apostle Paul, and we get to see what's in the inside of a devoted man. We get to see, and we see what the inside of a devoted man of God looks like. Unlike so many of his other letters, it doesn't present systematic, ordered arguments. It doesn't even present doctrine as such, although it alludes to it everywhere. But it gives us passion. It gives us the heart of a man, his experience with God personally. So we might ask the question, are we going to study this letter? Are we going to study the man? (laughs) And the answer is yes, we are. (laughs) Because the letter is about the man, has his heart. Erasmus compares this epistle to a river, which sometimes flows in a gentle stream, sometimes rushes down as a torrent, bearing all before it, sometimes spreading out like a placid lake, sometimes losing itself, as it were, in the sand and breaking out in its fullness in some unexpected place. So that is some of what we plan to experience as we go through God's, this God-inspired epistle. Aida, before we go, and most of the message this morning is actually going to be about the background and the history. As, as we look at the context of 2 Corinthians, why was it written? What's going on here? And so we're going to look at that, most of that this morning. And so the history of the church of Corinth before 2 Corinthians was written, or yeah, before it was written right up to the time. So we're going to have a little bit of a... Bible study here. I um, went to the Home Messenger Library yesterday and I found a packet of maps. Mm, That's not going to stay. I was afraid of that. (laughs) There's no spring there. So... Let me see. I did have some secondary. Don't talk too much about German ingenuity here. I guess that'll have to do. (laughs) And uh, hopefully we can all see this. I don't know. I'll bring it front here a little bit. But I want it to to be interesting for us to know, maybe most of you do already, of this um, Paul's missionary journeys. Let me see if we can bring this thing to stay or not up here. I'll have to hold it, I believe. So, the history. The church was established during, um, during his second missionary journey. If you look up here, is Antioch here. And the first missionary journey that Paul took, he had sailed to Cyprus, and then he just took this little bit of a loop here, and he came back there. But in the second time, he goes 
over here and takes this whole route, comes to Antioch of, uh, of Asia and goes to Troas and to Philippi. This is where um, somewhere over here, Troas, I think, is where you had the Macedonian dream, what we call the Macedonian call, where someone is set from Macedonia, which is over here, said, come and help us. So they went over to Philippi, and that's where, of course, um, they, after he cast the demon possessed, cast a demon out of a girl, he was thrown into prison, and then they had the earthquake, and uh, the jailer got converted and all that. After that, they went on down to Thessalonica, and they were persecuted there. Then they went to Berea, and those people were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the word of God. And after that, they came, he, got sent down to, he went down to Athens, had the Mars Hill uh, discourse with those philosophers. And then after Mars Hill, he went to Corinth. And at Corinth, he, uh, he went there. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. He went to Corinth alone. And um, later on, probably within a few months, Timothy, Timothy came within a few months. <clears throat> Silas and Timothy both, yeah, joined him a few months later. So Corinth is a huge cosmopolitan uh, it's a, it, you can't see it real good, but it's at a very narrow neck. There's water here, and there's water over here. And to go for trade, to go over to Italy and so on, they would have needed to go around here. And they were said, you should not go around this area, it's so stormy waters and so on, unless you have your whale made out. It was a dangerous journey. So it was easier to go directly across here, four miles of land, and so traders were going back and forth, freighters, and then also north and south, which is narrow neck of land that connected this with this. So traders were going north and south and east and west. So it was that city in that place. It was a very wicked city. As you can imagine, people all over the world, far from home. And it had... Um, Temple worship, it had prostitution, it had idolatry of all kinds, and between there's estimates between a hundred thousand to seven hundred thousand people, but we can guess four or five hundred thousand people would have been there. Paul stays there. When he gets there, he, he meets Aquila and his wife Priscilla. They were Jews that had been sent from Rome. Uh, there was a ruler from Rome that had uh, ordered all the Jews out of Rome. So they went from Rome and they came to Corinth. And they were tent makers. Paul was a tent maker. So he lived with them. And um, they did face significant success and opposition in preaching the gospel at Corinth. And while he was at Corinth... Especially after they got a, a lot of opposition, Paul had a vision again. And you can turn to Acts chapter uh, 18. 
Paul is in Corinth and he has a vision. It's directly from the Lord. Acts chapter 18, verse 9. Then spake the Lord to Paul in the night by a vision. Be not afraid, but speak. Hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set thee to hurt thee. For I have much people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Can you imagine what that did to the Apostle Paul when you get a word and you have opposition and you don't know exactly what's going to happen and a word comes to you from the Lord, don't be afraid, you're not going to be destroyed. Or what does it say actually? No man shall set on thee to hurt thee. So you have the, the promise of safety from the Lord and then you have there's many people. I have many people in this city. Can you imagine how that must have thrilled his heart? I mean, I can't imagine. There's a lot of people here. They're not all here yet. And you can go preach with all you want. They're not going to hurt you. And I can imagine he left loose. So he was there for those 18 months. And then he left. He left and he went, sailed over, you can actually see there, went right over to Ephesus and he stayed at Ephesus for a little bit. Now we're going to have to do some conjecture here. This is what you from the scripture and commentators and so on think. While he was at Ephesus, he gets word that things aren't everything they should be at Corinth. He gets the word already. And I'll give you reasons why we, why we think that way. The roof started to cave in at Corinth after he left. So he was there for 18 months. He preached the word and many people came to the Lord. And there was a thriving church there. But after he left, the roof started to cave in. And we have to remember, they were formerly a pagan people and they were living in a pagan culture. And just like it took a while to get Egypt out of Israel when they left there in the Exodus, you know, it took a while to get Corinth out of the Corinthians. So, after Paul left, while at Ephesus, he wrote them a letter. Uh, that's a specific issue they had was immorality. That seemed to be the specific issue at first. And he wrote them a letter about that immorality, and we don't have that letter. We have a reference to it, so turn to 1 Corinthians. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Looking at the background of 2 Corinthians, what we're doing at the time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Here Paul says, I wrote unto you in an epistle, in a letter. I wrote unto you in a letter, not to company with fornicators. So that was this letter that, was, that went before 1 Corinthians was written. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, 
or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. But now I have written unto you, now that is this letter. Now I have written unto you, not to keep company if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner. With such a one, know not to eat. So this letter that he wrote, we don't have. So after he wrote that letter, he went back to Caesarea and then to Jerusalem. You can see his journey. He went to Caesarea, went to Jerusalem, and then went up to his home church in Antioch. And that was the end of his second missionary journey. Now, there are references of a painful visit to Corinth that is not recorded in the scripture. There's a reference to it because he speaks to them in 2 Corinthians about coming to them the third time. And there are indications of another letter called the severe letter that was written after he wrote 1 Corinthians. And I bit my fingernails and I chewed off the erasers off my pencil yesterday or Friday, whenever it was, I spent way too much time trying to figure out whether it's true or not. And I finally decided it really doesn't matter for sure. <laughs> because there's, there's, there's the indications of it, but I couldn't be sure. I'm actually more sure that there was another letter than, a, than the visit. So I decided it doesn't matter. It may be or it may not have been. Like I said, I'm more certain that another letter came than another visit, although I cannot completely rule out the visit either. So Paul comes home to his home church in Antioch there in Syria and probably stays there the winter. And then he goes on his next missionary journey. And I have another map here, but I'm not even going to bother. We can just follow this map. <laughs> so he just simply goes on his second missionary journey. And he goes inland, follows there, and then he comes to Ephesus. And he parks there for a little bit. While he's at Ephesus, people from Corinth come over to Ephesus from Chloe's house, and they give Paul a report about what's going on at Corinth. And the report is not good. Not good. It, they had divisions, and they had lawsuits, and they had immorality, and they had disorderly gatherings. And they also had a bunch of questions. And uh, when, when Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, he's answering some of the questions they gave him. And so maybe, maybe they wrote a letter or maybe Chloe's house, maybe, maybe they brought the letter to him. Anyhow, it was while he was at Ephesus on his third missionary journey that he wrote 1 Corinthians. That's when 1 Corinthians was written. And in that letter, he gives, you know, we're familiar with the letter, he gives a lot of correction. Some people think that after 1 Corinthians that Paul wrote another letter called a severe letter. 
whether it was 1 Corinthians or whether it was another severe letter, I'm not sure. But what we do know is Paul was very, very, very concerned about that church over there. The church that he had spent a year and a half at that had got a promise from God was not going well. In fact, I'd like to ask the, the, the question, is it okay to worry? I was at the whole messenger library yesterday where I got these maps. And there was this, you can buy all kinds of Christian things there, you know, Christian pens and Christian notebooks and Christian mugs. And, you know, and there was this little tablet here that said, uh, pray more, worry less. I think I should have got one for the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Did Paul worry? I'm going to read some things here, and I want you to think in your own mind whether Paul worried. What we do know is this. Paul left Ephesus after some time, but he didn't go directly over to Corinth. He, in his first letter of Corinth, he had said, I'm going to come to you, and then he didn't go. Instead, he went up through here. He went to Troas, where he was expecting to meet Titus. Well, let's, let's read here, not to get ahead of myself here. Yeah, at Troas, he had expected to meet Titus, who was supposed to be coming back with news from Corinth. Apparently, they had made some kind of, some kind of uh, agreement. So he went to Troas, but Titus was not there. So he went to Macedonia, in this area, probably Philippi, and found Titus. So, uh, let's read here in actually 2 Corinthians. Now we'll be finally in 2 Corinthians for a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. This is the reference to what I was talking about here. So he came from Ephesus and went to Troas. So there in verse 12 of chapter 2. Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened unto me of the Lord. I had no rest in my spirit because I found not Titus my brother, but taking leave of them, I went from thence to Macedonia. He went and he expected to find Titus at Troas. He wanted to hear. Titus was at Corinth and he wanted to hear how things were and he went to Troas and Titus is not there. So then he had a, a wide open door. The gospel was, it was open door to preach the gospel. And now, you, and if you know Apostle Paul, that's him in his glory. You got an open door to preach the gospel. The gospel is going, what does it say? Um, a door was opened unto me of the Lord. It was the Lord opening up a door to preach the gospel in Troas. And there you would think is Paul shining. And what is he doing? I had no rest in my spirit. You ever have no rest in your spirit? Is that worry? I have to let you decide that. Concern. He wanted so badly to hear from Titus what the Corinthians' response was to his letter. 
his severe letter. And here's where I do not know whether it was the first Corinthians letter or whether it was a letter he sent afterwards that he really rebuked them. I'm not sure. I tend to think it probably was another one, but I don't know. But uh, he wanted to know so badly that he left Troas while the ministry there was going well, when there was an open door for the gospel to go forward. But Paul, why would you leave such a place? Well, he cared about the Corinthian church, those wayward disciples of his. He really did. And then let's also turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 to 8. We find another reference of this very, very same thing there. Verse 5, for, for when we were coming into Macedonia, which is they came there from Troas, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Excuse me. Without were fightings, within were fears, and it's those fears within that has no rest in his spirit. Nevertheless, God, that comforteth those that are cast down, Paul was cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, this is the Corinthians, your mourning, your fervent mind towards me, so that I rejoice the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Paul went from extreme anxiety to great joy. Right here. Titus was there. I had to know, what is it, Titus? How are things going at Corinth? Did they accept my rebuke? They did. Almost all of them. They're sorry now. They repented. Paul was relieved, extremely relieved. So much that he starts his next letter and we didn't read it, we'll read it later, uh, maybe next message. The letter, 2 Corinthians, starts this way. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforted us in all our tribulation. He starts that letter in that joyful note because of what he heard. Back to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, there is an interesting sentence in here. I'd like to just bring that out if you're still there. For he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were for but a season. It's a little strange wording there. I sent you a letter. I do not repent that I sent it, but I did repent that I sent it. <laughs> what does that mean? Well, it means, the, I'm pretty sure it means this. I, I wrote this letter, 
And after I sent it, I regretted it. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Right now we can do it really easy. We can just push, click, and it goes. <laughs> why did he, why did he almost regret sending it? Because he didn't know how, what their response was going to be. Their response might be worse. Because I sent a letter, they might react to it and the situation gets worse rather than better. So he, he, that, was some, that was some of the anxiety that was going on in his heart. So it might get worse and it might destroy everything that was going on. All those people, all those years, all of God's witness in that wicked place just might go up. Because the letter could be too painful. And I just wonder if you were ever in a situation like that. The older you are, the more likely you are to have been in this situation. Something is wrong in a situation. Something must be done. This situation must be confronted. It must be challenged. And you need to do it. But you, with all your heart, wish you wouldn't have to do it. You, you, you don't know what the outcome is going to be. You, you, you are, here's a problem, and we need to respond to it. But, oh, this is a tough one. Ever been there? <laughs> But because you care for the person and the situation and for the glory of God, you move ahead in faith and in prayer. And that's all you can do. So it was with Paul. He was very concerned. He had no rest in his spirit. Within were fears. Would it hurt them? Would they respond positively? The paraphrase of that verse is, is, uh, brings out some clarity here. She said, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful for you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. So anyhow, whichever, whether that was 1 Corinthians or another letter is irrelevant. It was a letter that he sent. Now, there were still some there at Corinth that were opposing Paul. And this is what they said. In, I'll just read it in First Corinthians, uh, no, in Second Corinthians 10:10, 10, 10, is Paul talking about these people that are opposing him, okay? He says, for his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful, <laughs> but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. So that was some people's opinion of Paul. Yeah, he, he's, yeah, he can preach, he can give those strong letters, but when he comes, he's just a wishy-wash. And Paul then tells them that it's not going to be that way. So a little bit of an overview here. Paul spent 18 months at Corinth, Soon after he left, he wrote the letter about the immorality, which we don't have. We have only a reference to it. Then he sent 
the first Corinthians letter to them. Then my idea is he probably wrote a third letter rebuking them again sharply. Titus would have been sent to deliver that letter and bring news back. And when he came back, he gave a report that's recorded in 2 Corinthians 7, which we read. And then 2 Corinthians is the last letter that was sent to them from Paul. And Paul is much relieved that report from Titus relieved his mind from a load of anxiety and filled his heart with gratitude from God. We will not analyze it now, but when you get to hear the whole of Paul's heart, he was concerned about two things. He was concerned about the sin in the church, but he was also concerned about, let me say it this way, his main concern was not about the person or persons that had sinned. Tolerating sin in a church is bad. It is really bad. But his main stress was whether the church as a whole would continue to believe and appreciate Paul and his message that he had preached. And it turned out that the majority of the church did. Majority of the church came back to Paul, but there was... You have to understand that Paul had enemies. Everywhere Paul went, starting up churches, people came behind him and tried to destroy his work. Everywhere he went. I don't know if there's any exceptions to that. And 2 Corinthians is no exception. And in, in 2 Corinthians, we're going to talk about, we're going to hear about false apostles, false teachers, false prophets. What were they doing there? Well, what they were doing is trying to discredit Paul and take the church their way. Very clear. That's what they were trying to do. He had just gotten a good word from Titus, and Titus had told him something like this, to paraphrase. The majority of the church is responding to your letter. They're falling in line with God's word. They are doing what they were supposed to be doing. Things are turning around. It is a good day. And that is why Paul was experiencing all this comfort. At the same time, he knew the battle was not over because there was still that recent pagan background to deal with, and he still lived in a wicked city, but most importantly, there were still people influencing the church. Paul's enemies were influencing the people. They were associating with the church. Were they a part of the church? I don't know. I don't know. I can't. I don't know if I could. Maybe I'll make my mind up later on. But they were dead serious about throwing Paul out and bringing in their teaching. There were influential people there associating with the church who were dead serious in throwing Paul out and his teachings. And that sentence that I just read is the main reason for the second letter of Corinthians. The false apostles who tried to undermine the whole church, who tried to deny Paul's 
apostolic authority were still there. And the people that were in the church that were enamored by those false apostles and they were deluded by those false apostles were still there too because those false apostles had a following and they were still there also. <clears throat> so the potential for disloyalty to Paul from the Second Corinthians was still there. It was not completely done. Let's, it's like a little, a little bit like if the, like you have a, a huge blaze, the building is burning, and you have a water, and you knock the fire down, and it's just smoldering. It's almost out. You had a major, I mean, the thing is not going up in flames anymore. That's why Paul was rejoicing. It's not going up in flames anymore, but it's smoldering. And it still has the potential to spark out and go up in flames again. That potential is there in this church. A major battle had been won, but the war is not over. So Paul gets out his pen and paper and writes them another letter. That's the context of 2 Corinthians. So let's look at it with a little bit of time we have left. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints which are in Achaia, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul identifies himself as an apostle, and you might ask, is that important? And we say, yes, that is important. As an apostle, he had a special commission and a special authority that those who are not apostles, they don't have. You know, we often hear about, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are, right? We are ambassadors for Christ. We are, um, heaven is our home, but we live on earth and we represent God in a foreign country. That's what an ambassador is. And we are all ambassadors to officially represent our home country in this country here. <clears throat> so while this is where we live, when you are an ambassador, when you are an ambassador in a country, you live in that country. But that country is not your home. But you live there. And so we live here, but this country is not our home. But we're living here as an ambassador. Now, if, if we live here as if it were our home, and then we have a problem. Because now you're no longer being the ambassador of the other country because you have made this your home. <clears throat> Anyone who lives here as if it were her true home is not a faithful ambassador. So we are ambassadors. Paul was an apostle. Now that's a step above an ambassador. 
He was one of the 13 men specifically chosen by Jesus to lay the foundation of the church. And we have that verse, that very familiar verse in 1 Corinthians 3.11 that says, No other foundation can any man lay than what that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. From there, you get the idea that Jesus Christ is the foundation. Well, that is true, but it's not the whole picture. <laughs> Let's turn, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. This is another one of Paul's letters, and he is speaking about how the Gentiles have become part of God's chosen people. And he says there in verse 19, Now therefore, ye Gentiles, are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So here we have the apostles identified as the foundation. And we had the Lord Jesus identified as a cornerstone. So Jesus is part of the foundation. And he's the first part that was laid. The cornerstone. The stone that all other stones must line up to for that building to be strong and true. That's the Lord Jesus. In the western wall of the, they call it a western wall in the temple, they call it the Wailing Wall too, in Jerusalem, there is one huge foundational stone of 500 tons is how much it weighs. One stone with no piece of machinery on earth is today is capable of moving it. That is our Lord Jesus. He is a foundation stone, unique and special and immovable. There is no other cornerstone that can do what he did. A few verses in Revelations talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to just focus a little bit on the cornerstone now. In Revelations 5, verses 2 to 5, his apostle John had his vision in heaven, and he wrote about his experience. And he said, and he said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. He did what no other possible person entity, anything could do. And so he is unique. He's the cornerstone. But the apostles are unique too in a different way. They are a part of the foundation. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, I know some of you, you're going to come to me and say, well, who are the prophets? 
And I'm not sure who they are for sure. Maybe you can tell me. Maybe you know who they are. I'm not sure. But one thing I am sure, the church is built on the foundation. The cornerstone get laid, gets laid first. It gets laid completely first. Then, and only then, can the foundation be begin to be laid that doesn't mean that the foundational stones couldn't have been cut and prepared before the, found, before the cornerstone was laid, but the cornerstone is laid first, then the foundation. Once the foundation stones are laid, you can begin to lay stones on top of it. And you don't actually have to lay the entire foundation before you begin to build on top of it. Did you know that? You can actually build part of the foundation, and you can begin to put stones on top of the part that's built. You can do that. But at some point, as the building goes up, you're going to finish that foundation, and that foundation is done. So my point is, whoever those prophets were, since they were part of the foundation, those prophets do not exist any more than the apostles do, <laughs> because they were part of the foundation, and the foundation has been laid. The apostles were given the specific charge to lay the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. And once the apostolic age was over, the foundation was finished. Now it is everyone's responsibility to build on that foundation. The statement that I, I think I had another message, the post-apostolic age is the era when the church would transition from oral and hands-on instruction to scriptural instruction. In other words, the foundation of scripture is laid, and now there we have that. So most time when Paul begins a letter, one of his 13 letters, most of the time he affirms his authority and his commission. He says he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that's what he says in this letter. And he said, it is the will of God. He says, by the will of God. It's the will of God that he is. So remember what Paul is doing. There are some people who are challenging his apostleship. They're going to get pretty bad. They have been pretty bad. They really were nasty against Apostle Paul and what they said about him and the inferences they made about him and his motives aren't pure. He, uh, he actually said he would come and visit you and he didn't come and visit you and, and, and he's only in it for the money and all kinds of stuff. They, 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 they threw stuff at him. Paul, he says, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God. And he goes right up to the top. You can't go higher than that. I'm apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the will of God and makes that appeal. And he's doing that with the whole idea of what he needs to do in mind. So, like I said, the most important considering this letter this is most important considering that this letter is primarily a defense of his credentials by some false apostle that he sarcastically calls 
super apostles later on. So he begins, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. Now I want to make another point to demonstrate what I'm uh, saying here. He identifies Timothy as what? A brother. Not a fellow apostle. Why not? Did he have to have a commission? <laughs> it's important. Timothy was not an apostle. He was not one of those 13 men, though he was clearly Paul's most faithful, dedicated, and effective disciple. He was clearly that. If there would have been any succession of apostleship, anything of that nature, any continuation of a foundation, Timothy would have gotten it, and he didn't. He was a brother. What does that make him? That means he was part of the stones that was laid on top of the foundation. Timothy was part like we are. He was part of the building, not part of the foundation. He did not get any of the apostle lineage from Paul. And Paul identifies him as a co-participant in this letter and identifies him as a brother, as a part of the building. So, Timothy is. He's like you. And he's like me. He is a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in, in his case, he was a teacher and a pastor and a promoter and a guardian of the truth. So the point made is there are no apostles and prophets today of the kind that were there during that time at the foundation. So Paul was an apostle and Timothy, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints that are in Achaia. And that last phrase there, all the saints that are in Achaia, means probably there were churches around the city in, a, in the region, I suppose. But he's talking specifically about the church. So the church at Corinth was the church of God. It still was the church of God. They had responded well to that correction. Would there have been a different designation? if they would not have responded well. If they would not have responded well to that letter, would Paul still have called them a church of God? What do you think? I hear from the Calvinistic perspectives that no matter how bad things get, in the end, one only loses rewards, never their salvation. And I hear that whenever I bump into that perspective. And that might sound nice, but it's not scriptural at all. You remember the seven churches in Revelations? Jesus very specifically said two things to those seven churches. Two things that he very specifically said. He said one, one of them was corporate. He said, if you do not 
turn around, I am going to take your candlestick away. When you do not have a candlestick, you are not a church of God. You used to be, now you are not. And then the second one is personal. If you do not turn around, some of you people, and repent, I will blot out your name from the book of life. Your name is there. It is still there. But it will not remain there if you persist in your ways. There is a blotter in heaven, and it seems like Jesus would use it. It seems like he does use it. And if a name is not found in the book of life, that person is cast into the lake of fire. So, the Corinthians, they are the church of God. The candlestick is still there. And the names of the people are still in the book of life. God is still working. People are still responding to God. God is not done. And beautiful things are going to happen here. But not everybody in the church is there. It is obvious from what Paul writes that false apostles and false teachers and false prophets were still there. They were denying Paul's apostolic authority, like I said. And he said, you can't trust him. He's a self-appointed man. He's not authentic. He's not for real. Their plan was to undermine Paul's credibility. Then to undermine his teaching. You see the sequence? After that is well on its way, they can bring in their own false teaching. Undermine the character to undermine his credibility so people will turn away. You know, if you do not trust someone, you cannot hardly take anything from them. That's true in relationships. That's true today. If you do not have confidence in someone, you will not listen to them. And so as we look at this book, we wonder, Paul, why did you talk so much about yourself? He was responding. He is going to respond to the attacks to his personality, to his credibility, to his trustworthiness. That's why he goes into this whole um, fool, became a fool and all those things that he just simply, really out of character. Because the Apostle Paul, generally, he liked to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ and he liked to promote the truth, right? Here he is lifting himself up. That's the reason why. Now, I don't know if you ever find yourself in a place where someone is slandering you. What your, your response be? I'm not here to say that. I just hear what Apostle Paul did and, and what was necessary. He needed to do it so that he does not lose that church, those people that he had labored for, that God had said, I have many people. He was fighting 
for their souls. And he knew if they lose confidence in his character, they're going to go with those false apostles. That was, that was the battle. And that's what we're going to um, get into. In the church, some people are still sympathetic to the false apostles. Some are still the victims of sin. And it's out of this mixed emotion of gratitude for those who have responded and concern for those who haven't that he writes this letter. And then we have the verse 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll just... End the message there this morning and trust that the Lord can lead us on in the future with that. So may the Lord bless you. I guess I would encourage you all. You have your own reading schedules and all of that. I encourage you to read 2 Corinthians. Get familiar with it. And, uh, and let's go from there. Okay, may God bless you.